On this episode, we've gathered together a long-distance rider, a long-distance pillion, an endurance rider, and a scientist. And together, they've generated the best tips and tricks to make you a better adventure motorcyclist. We'll also speak with Carl Reese about his solo motorcycle cannonball record trip going from Los Angeles to New York. Grab your pencil. You'll likely want to take some notes. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tag. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Sid Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, who we're very proud to be associated with. They've been outfitting adventure riders since 2002, and they've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. That's free. You can just go to their website, maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And another company we're proud to be associated with is Best Rest Products. They're home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, and the Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other motorcycle gear. So whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a reliable tire inflation method, and that is definitely the Cycle Pump. It's what we use ourselves here at Adventure Rider Radio. And get this, it's got a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Coming up next, we have a California contractor with a hobby you would not expect. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. By day, Carl Reese is a California contractor, but in his spare time, what he likes to do is set world records. In fact, in less than a year, he set seven world records, one of them being a solo motorcycle trip, often referred to as the Cannonball Run, from Los Angeles to New York. And his trip, he did it in 38 hours and 49 minutes. Now, if you know anything about the width of the United States, the mileage involved, and then on top of that, the traffic congestion, you think this is almost impossible. Here's Carl to tell us how he did it. My name's Carl Reese. I'm from Southern California. And um, I'm most notable for setting seven world records in the last 12 months. Well, Carl, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> Thank you for having me. How did you get into motorcycle riding? Uh, about the age of 12, uh, my uncle, who's only a few uh, years older than me, had a, a dirt bike. And uh, anytime I went to go visit my grandparents, he was riding around on it. And I, I just thought it was amazing because you know, my family was um, um, not rich by any means. And uh, the the fact that you know, you could be mobile and go places on two wheels. It was just amazing when he would let me ride it. And so 
Uh, my cousin had a bike for sale that he had grown out of, but again, my parents weren't in any position to to uh, purchase that for me. So they told me if I wanted something like that, I'd have to save for it. So over the course of uh, two summers, I mowed neighbors' lawns and raked leaves in the fall and shoveled driveways. And I even sold greeting cards and uh, shoes door-to-door at age 12 and 13 to save money. (laughs) I sold mason shoes. I don't even know if they're in business anymore. I'd take a trace of somebody's foot and send it off and have a shoe made. And uh, fortunately, I had uh, a lot of good neighbors that were willing to uh, help me out and Saved my birthday money, and I managed to scrape together uh, $300 to buy a used Suzuki 70 street and trail uh, and would ride with my uncle and my uh, stepbrother places. uh, And, man, we cut through Pennsylvania woods, and we even drove on the roads a little bit. And, uh, you know, the freedom of being on a motorcycle. and, And I think it meant a lot more to me because I had to save the money myself to buy it. And uh, that got me started on uh, uh, motorcycle riding. That is an early start for sure. And and I think you're right, though. I think there's something about earning that, isn't there? You had to wait those two years. And and I'm sure a lot of your neighbors probably said, oh, it's the Reese boy again. (laughs) He's at our door. What do we do? (laughs) Should I shoo him away? Uh, No pun intended. (laughs) Yeah, it was was, uh, honest to God's truth. If I could find something in the back of a magazine uh, that would say that they would pay you either in points or in in money to sell their 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 product i would um you know knock on doors and you know had a lot of doors closed in my face and then there were you know a few people that would just say yeah i'll buy some christmas cards from you i even pulled weeds at a um a flower shop that was up the hill from where my my parents lived and after school, I'd pull weeds for an hour in their greenhouses before I would go home and do my own chores, which I didn't get paid for, and then do my homework and then uh, you know, get up, go to school, and do the next thing the same day. In the summer months, I had a little bit more time to earn extra money at my grandfather's gas station. Um, my, my, uh, my grandfather would pay me to rake the trash out of the bushes and mow his grass there at the business and – um, you know, wait on customers when I could. And, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a long arduous road to get that first bike. And from there, there was no turning back. I think, um, my first road experience was, uh, I was working in upstate New York. I was about 19 years old and, uh, I was on a job site with, uh, uh a bunch of guys that were working. They were having a picnic on a Saturday and this, uh, I showed up and a couple guys had their Harleys there at this picnic and I was looking over this, you know, Harley and the guy came over and said, Hey, you want to take it for a ride? Here's the keys. I'm like, are you kidding? And he's like, no, no, take it for a ride. We're going to be pitching horseshoes here. I left and I didn't come back until two hours after dark. And the guy was in a panic. I'll bet. And he was like, Where'd you go? And I was like, Oh man, I went exploring down this road and this road. And oh man, this thing's great. And I said, I got to get a bike. And I was like, What'd you pay for this? And he told me. And uh, I was like, Oh man, I got to find something used. So I started asking around the job site. And the guy that, um, um, 
would refill the propane tanks there in upstate New York to keep the job sites warm. Um, he had one leaning against his garage. It was an old water buffalo, uh, uh, 750, um, and it had been leaning against his barn. He had a, a tarp over top of it. The carburetors were all gunked up. Battery was dead, of course, and the tires were rotted off of it. And I said, what do you want for it? He says, I'll take 350 bucks. And I said, okay, I'll get you the money on Friday. So I uh, paid him, took it home, put some tires on it, and I rode that thing around for two years, I think, before I traded up. And it had a big windjammer uh, fairing on it. And, I mean, again, that was my childhood all over again. You know, it was, you know, being mobile on two wheels, and now I could go anywhere on the roads. And I just wanted to explore every single back road. You know, I wanted to know where each road led to and what I was going to see on that road. How did you get interested in doing speed records or, or just speed and distance riding to begin with? I guess my main reason for wanting to um, do speed records um, stems from two friends that you know come to mind. Uh, one friend had done uh, three tours back to back in Iraq, and when he came home from his last tour, he was left with uh, you know a gash in his head from an IED explosion. The the second IED um, uh, took out his driver. And uh, when he came back from that third tour, he, um, him and I got a chance to talk, and he was telling me that his, 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 his wife thought that would be a good time to leave him, and he was just kind of at the end of his, um, his rope, so to speak, and I invited him to come out west and that we would just ride motorcycle together and just try to you know, clear his head a little bit, and I knew that it was important to kind of get him out of his uh, box that he was uh, in at the time. So I invited him out here to California. We rode motorcycles for about five days, and then he went back to Pennsylvania. And this high school buddy of mine uh, ended up getting some new um, new perspective on life. And uh, about the same time, I was having some health issues, and uh, more or less, my doctor told me they were stress related. And but by no means was my stress anywhere near what my buddy was experiencing. Um, you know, being in combat, but um, to look back on it all now, uh, I think we both kind of rescued each other. You know, it was a it was a time for him to decompress from what he was going through and for me to get away from my business a little bit and reprioritize, you know, a work-life balance. So, um, by, by the end of those five days of riding together, this is the first time that I had, you know, dusted the, my bike off. It had been sitting in the garage and I was making all kinds of excuses of why I didn't need to go riding. Um, you know, work would seem to get in the way or I would take on another project and, you know, I had very little downtime. And so I made a promise to myself, you know, after my buddy left back from Pennsylvania that I would, um, I was going to carve out more time to, you know, go riding. And probably about a year or two later, um, something else surfaced, a, a, a close friend of mine that um, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um he was taken away from his, you know, family and friends at a very early age, and 
I kind of gained some perspective and looked at myself and said, wow, I'm very close to that age and there's some things I want to do. And being in the Guinness Book of World Record was one of them, as trivial as that sounds compared to, you know, the, you know, the stories that I just shared with you, but it was something that was important to me. And, um, I thought, well, I'm going to get my name in the Guinness Book. So I started researching some records and I had just recently uh, purchased an electric vehicle, um, I wanted to carve out, um, you know, some some of my um, budget uh, for what I was spending on, you know, gasoline uh, year after year for work vehicles and vehicles to, you know, do estimates and so forth. And so, um, the time for you know going across country in any kind of vehicle is no longer recognized for Tesla for speed on public roads. They quit. They, they abolished that in 1966. However. Uh, they do recognize the shortest charging time for an electric vehicle. So it it took a lot of you know planning and doing the math and figuring average speed um, would net this many miles before having to recharge and what was the most efficient way to recharge at each stop. And so I kind of got um, sucked into all of the planning that goes into a trip like this. You mentioned there that the that someone and I wasn't sure who you're referring to. Are you referring to the Guinness Book? They've abolished the speed distance, and and they're talking about charging time. Or who was that? Okay, so uh, to clarify a little bit, the Guinness Book of World Records used to identify point to point records. So back in the day, these these records have been going on for over a hundred years in America uh, for motorcycle records. So there were all kinds of point-to-point records. You could go from uh, New York to San Diego, and that would be a record just because the roads were too bad. And they would recognize the speed um, between those two records on public roads. And if you went from San Francisco to New York, that would be a separate record. There was even a record from uh, San Diego um, up to San Francisco. So regardless of the time it took, they were just saying just if you went from here to there, that was a record at that time. Yes, yes. And then the roads were so atrocious between each major city because they were just pretty much mud pits if it rained and there were no street signs. And so it was a big accomplishment for you know guys like Cannonball Baker to go from New York to L.A., and and make it in a short amount of time. So Guinness was um, recognizing these records right up until '66, and then uh, corporate lawyers, you know, got involved and said, "Well, you know, there there is some liability here, and you know, they are on public roads. So, you know, let's let's quit recognizing these and certifying them." And so they kind of let it go. But the records still were being broken. Um, you know, about every twenty to thirty years, the you know somebody would step up and and set a new time. However, it was just put on you know the internet or it was recorded in the press. But Guinness quit uh, recognizing them. What Guinness does recognize, however, is they will recognize the shortest charging time in electric vehicle to go coast to coast. So if your vehicle is very efficient in charging, they want to know how many minutes you were stopped to charge. But they won't recognize that, you know, I did it in 57 hours to cross the United States. They're just interested in reporting how efficient uh, the car was in charging time. 
So what about when it comes to a gas-powered vehicle? What, what are they used to measure that? Uh, they won't recognize that. Oh, at all? Really? At okay. all. But the record stands for gasoline uh, car is 29 hours, 28 hours, 50 minutes for a gasoline car. It was done by Ed Boyan and Dave Black, and they did it in a CL55 uh, Mercedes uh, from New York to uh, L.A., and they did that back in like 2013. Mm. You can totally see why the Guinness Book has stopped recording it. And it makes sense. I mean, otherwise you're going to have people screaming down public roads trying to break records. And it's just going to keep escalating. I mean, people just keep pushing the limit and pushing the limit. And, and of course, the potential for someone to be hurt is, is huge. That's why these, these records are always sort of raise eyebrows, you know, when people talk about distance and speed records. What was the motorcycle cannonball record that you set then? I set the fastest time between New York and um, Los Angeles, and I did it in 38 hours and uh, some change. And um, the, the record had stood for 30, almost 33 years by George Egloff. Now, this record hasn't been uh, officiated through the Guinness Book then? No, but um, the evidential standards that I brought forth uh, exceed what Guinness would have required uh, to prove uh, my time. So just to give you an idea, um, George Egloff's time was uh, recorded for the during the U.S. Express Run, which was a underground event that was held like once a year for four years. Uh, these guys would gather in New York City and uh, punch a time card at a parking structure in Manhattan, and then they would drive to Redondo Beach at the Portofino Hotel, and there was a employee time clock there where they would punch the card again. And George Egloff was the only one to enter this event in a motorcycle. Everybody else had did it in cars. And prior to that, George had entered into another underground event that's well-known called the Cannonball Run, and that was held by Brock Yates. And he was an editor for Car and Driver magazine. And at the time, they were kind of rebelling against the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. So George entered Cannonball Run several years in a row, and he had done the U.S. Express a few years in a row. So the Cannonball Run then is sort of this uh, underground thing, which is, is pretty cool sounding. And it was set up where people entered, and, and it was all sort of done on the sly? Okay, so I'll tell you how the Cannonball came about. A uh, cannonball event was named after uh, Cannonball Baker, who in the early 1900s had set um, several land speed records across the United States. And people would turn out in the cities and cheer him on and raise their hats and even have parades for this guy. And when he come blazing through your village, people would stand at the edge of the street and listen for the motor, you know, buzzing in the distance and you know, he would pass through their town, nothing but dust blowing behind him, and he wouldn't stop for, you know, anything but refueling and to take a nap. And um, he set multiple records. So um, fast forward to the early 70s, Brock Yates was a uh, editor for Car and Driver magazine, and he had done an interview with an NBA star who he asked, hey, we're a car publication. What is your favorite car? And he said, well, it was this Cadillac. Um, and Brock asked him why. And he said, well, I drove from L.A. here to um, 
New York to see my girlfriend, and I did it in some 40-something hours. And Brock Yates said, that's unbelievable, the, you know, the speed limits and so forth. And he's like, well, this has got a big V8 engine, and when you're cruising across the western United States, there's a lot of vast open spaces where it's just desert, and it's not as congested as the East Coast, so I made pretty good time. Well, Brock Yates's uh, listeners called BS on the story, and they wrote in, and they actually had so many uh, people write into the magazine that um, they said, "Well, we have to do another piece s- similar to this." And Brock said, "Well, I'll drive across the United States in a van, and I'll see if you know uh, this is possible." And he did it, and again, the readers just wrote in like mad, and he said, "Well, I'm." I'm I'm going to take a stab at this. Um, you know, I'm going to have an event, and we're just going to name it after Cannonball Baker, and um, and that started the Cannonball runs. That's really interesting, and of course, many people. I think most people probably listening to this have seen the movie Cannonball Run, which is made you know after that. So, how long did the Cannonball Run go for? Um, I I want to say that the Cannonball Run was. Um, ran by Brock Yates for something like four or five years. And then the U.S. Express went on to have four more cannonball-like events. How did it feel to break this record on your motorcycle? <laughs> well, for, for me, um, it, it, it's about the planning. For me, it's like a puzzle. Um, so when I look at there's a previous record or a time set, even during my work day, it just clicks in my head throughout the day. It's like another job site problem that somewhere in my brain I need to solve it. And I just can't let it go until I figure out what the combination is that this guy had um, you know, to make it from here to there. So it's basically trying to crack the code of what um, – you know, what can be accomplished and, you know, accomplished safe, safely. So when you're looking at, um, you know, the motorcycle record f- for me, you know, I, again, I, I, you know, I wasn't willing to take any kind of stimulants and, and with any of my records. So I gave up coffee, tea and sugar like six weeks before, um, I set out, you know, I consulted with a nutritionist that said the, I need, even though you enjoy coffee, you need to purge all that stuff out of your system. If you want, um, you know, coffee to have its maximum impact on you when you need to drink a cup, you, you can't have all that stuff in your system. So, um, looking at, you know, going across country, I said, you know, about halfway, uh, you know, I'm going to need to sleep. And I had looked and read uh, many articles of guys that had attempted to break George Egloff's time. And one of the um, the problems that they ran into is they would feel really strong about three quarters of the way through. And then they would crash. They would not crash in a literal sense, uh, but they would get three quarters away across the country and then they would lay down to take a you know a nap and fall asleep for like six hours, and thereby you know destroying any chance of uh, breaking the record. So, so what did you do? So you didn't run into the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I had planned a sleep stop in Kansas. I knew that in a car I'm good for about 22 hours before I need to stop. 
And uh, so on a bike, I knew I couldn't get quite 22 hours across country, but I figured I could get about 17 uh, before I was going to need to you know, get off and get some rest. So at Salina, Kansas, I had a team that went ahead of me and uh, had a um, Holiday Inn Express uh, room uh, set aside. And, um, you know, I met my team member there, um, you know, got off the bike, uh, stripped off some uh, expensive electronics uh, to bring into the hotel with me. And um, I took a shower, used the restroom, rehydrated, filled my hydration bladder, laid down. I slept for about an hour and 15 minutes and then got my gear back on and uh, synced everything back up on the bike. The GPS data shows me stopped for a total of two and a half hours at that sleep sleep stop, but the actual sleep time was an hour and 15 minutes. And that was enough to trick my body into believing that I had an, a night's rest. Uh, when I got up, you know, it would just be like getting up early for work, uh, you know, and having a very short night. And uh, that was enough to, um, you know, give me enough rest to get get the rest of the way into New York. Wow, that's not much sleep for 38 plus hours of riding. How do you, um, how did you manage the fatigue and keep it safe as you're going along there? Because the last thing you want to do, especially on a motorcycle, you can, I mean, you know, most of us have driven vehicles where you start to feel tired and you feel your eyes start to close and you go, okay, it's time to pull over. On a motorcycle, that can be fatal. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the ongoing preparation for this run was eight months of planning. Uh, I toyed around with the idea for about two years and tried to rope in somebody else to cross country with me, but everyone kind of backed out. They, you know, friends would say, you know, just got married, just had a kid, start a new job, can't take any time off work. I just can't do this. So I start laying some real groundwork about eight months before I went, and um, I had already start taking a um, stationary spin cycle class to kind of build up my core and get myself used to, um, you know, a workout routine. I, I worked with a personal trainer to get my core strength built up to strengthen my back to be setting for a long period of time. I brought my motorcycle seat into the kitchen and sat on it on a bar stool. I did my paperwork for my business in the evening and ate my dinner setting on it to get the uh, seat broken in because I didn't, it was a relatively new seat and uh, I knew I wasn't going to get enough seat time in the bike before I left. Um, there was just an insurmountable amount of planning, uh, right down to the food that would be taken on the trip was laid out by a nutritionist to be high energy, low sugar foods. Because if you, you know, eat candy bars and things like that, you know, the sugar's going to ramp up and then. You're, you're, you're not going to last eating Hershey bars and drinking coffee. So <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can imagine it's, it's like a whole team here that you almost have pulled together to pull this off. What about Cannonball Baker? Do you think he did that sort of planning or was there something else that he had? Well, this is something that I cover in a a multimedia PowerPoint presentation that I give, you know, I'm, I'm traveling around to kind of, you know, do speaking engagements and tell people and, and show them pictures of, of these guys like Cannonball Baker that had done these runs. But, um, the similarities between Cannonball Baker and my run and some of the guys that had beat Cannonball Baker's records, these guys used all the technology of their time. 
so Cannonball Baker would stage gasoline in vehicle in places that he knew that there were no gas stations for him to stop at. Um, uh, years later, guys that had broke his record, um, like uh, Roddy Roddenberg, who had done it in the 1930s, um, had um, motorcycle club people lead him through uh, some of the route. So uh, from Barstow into Los Angeles, he had another motorcycle club guy meet him there and lead him the last you know portion of the way. So he doesn't end up getting lost or something like that. Exactly. What was Cannonball Baker's original time? Um, he set 143 records in his lifetime and then later became the commissioner of NASCAR. So he would do it in any vehicle, any motorcycle that you gave him. So one, uh, he originally had gone uh, on an Indian from San Diego to New York as a point-to-point record. And then later in life, um, he did it on a Nira car. But his agreement with these manufacturers was if he didn't set a, um, a record, that they didn't have to pay him. So the Nira car was this... Um, it, all, it was like a cross between a scooter and a motorcycle. Um, if you look it up on the internet, it's just this goofy-looking contraption. Well, it, it didn't have enough horsepower to get him there, and he missed beating his earlier two-wheeled record. So he claimed an efficiency record that he used the least amount of gasoline to cross the country <laughs> compared to any other vehicle. And that was a record, as granular as it is. And he got his money from that. And he got his money. So um, the Indian is the most famous and most quoted, and often I see it misquoted online as he went from Los Angeles to um, New York for that Indian run. But it wasn't. It was San Diego. And then after the Nira car, he had set it on an ace motorcycle, and that was his L.A. to New York route. And after that, so many people were going after his record that everyone was copying that. And that kind of established the, the route for these cannonball runs. And he um, started on his ace out of Los Angeles and went to New York City. And uh, he left from Lincoln Park in Los Angeles and drove to Battery Park in New York in Manhattan. So over the years, um, he would just bounce back and forth. He would run from... LA to New York and then he'd get to New York and a manufacturer would give him some kind of vehicle and he'd leave from New York and come back out west. Certainly an interesting way uh, to make money. I always remember meeting a guy named Gary Sowerby. Have you ever heard of him? No. no. He, he did a, a record run from I think Alaska to, I'm not sure, I think it might have been Ushuaia, but I'm not sure. Um, but he, he had a, and this is back in I guess the 80s and I, I ran into him because I was doing publishing at the time, but um, he was a long distance driver is what he was. Same sort of thing as what you're doing, right? Except that what he was doing is he was doing it for a living, unlike yourself who has a, a real job <laughs> and a business. He was actually doing it for a living. So he would, he would, he said he would go like, you know, three, four years not making any money and then he might make $400,000 in the one year because it would take that much build up to to make these runs like I think that's the thing is what people don't realize we don't realize as someone who doesn't do records you don't realize the work that goes into the the background uh, the, the background work that goes into something like this to do a record attempt 
And, and I mean, the thing that always pops into my head is safety too, right? And, and same thing we've been talking about here is, you know, you're on public roads and that's a huge concern, right? Because you're taking the, the public's life sort of in your hands if you're you're driving at, at excessive speeds. But this is all part of the, the preparation. And, and I like what you said that, that Cannonball Baker used all the things that were modern at the time available to, to, to make the time and which is what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So safety is paramount. And that was definitely a huge part of my planning process. So there were, um, um, you know, through Nevada, Utah, uh, Western Colorado, there's, there's large, vast distances where there's hardly anyone on the roads. And here in the U.S., uh, Nevada just raised their speed limit to 80 miles an hour. Um, Utah has added a section of their road uh, to be 80 miles an hour. So we have like seven western states now that have 80 mile an hour speed limits. And that may sound like really high speed to folks that are maybe on the east coast or in a metropolitan area where things are congested during their commute. So you have to drive um, prudently. So when you're in a congested city, you know, sometimes even 25 mile an hour isn't safe if there's snow on the roads or the roads are wet and, you know, it's bumper to bumper traffic. You're not going to be able to do, you know, 75, 80 miles an hour. You have to drive what the conditions allow for. So as part of the planning process is that you want to move through major cities in the evening hours where there's no traffic on the road at all. And part of my planning process is that I had 12 safety teams staged across the United States where there were vehicles that would leave prior to my arrival and they would help negotiate whether I needed to take the bypass to go through the city based on construction or road conditions or traffic. And these teams were wired into my helmet. I had uh, two redundant Bluetooth systems, and I was wired into a um, network um, conference bridge that corporations used to do um, uh, conference calls on. So I could have 50 team members wired into one telephone conversation all at the same time, and my phone was dialed into that number continuously. Um, it was on a hot redial if the cell reception dropped out, but anyone that I needed to talk to knew that they needed to call into that number to be into my helmet, whether they were just listening and monitoring, uh, you know, what I was doing at the time, or I could talk to the team member that was closest to, uh, my motorcycle at the time. So these guys would watch weather, they would watch traffic patterns, um, and these team members were also scouting for anything, you know, on the road. Uh, for instance, in uh, Utah, there was a piece of plywood uh, that was um, uh, laying in the number one lane. Uh, through Kansas, one of my team members spotted a obliterated deer that had got hit by an 18-wheeler that was in pieces in number two lane. And I happened to be traveling in that number two lane in the evening hours. So these these are the bits and pieces of information that they would call. Um, I wouldn't have to answer the call because I just kept the hotline hot continuously in my helmet. So um, instantly, um, you know, I was getting information where I didn't have to be looking at, um, you know, my cell phone to see what the weather is. I, I would have uh, team members telling me, hey, in 15 minutes, you're going to be running into a rain squall. 
uh, if you get a good opportunity, you should get off the bike and, you know, get your rain gear on. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought technology would have played that big of a part in your crossing. And it's also interesting to think of the technology of the motorcycle and even the road surface. I mean, you mentioned before about how it was an accomplishment to get across the country on the roads because the roads were so bad. But but even the machinery, I mean, if you look at the machinery, the the brakes, you know, you know, back in the day were were horrible. The machine was not powerful. Uh, It was not aerodynamic. It was not set up for weather, et cetera, et cetera. So all that has changed now. And you're you're riding a completely different experience from what they did. That's for sure. Um, you know, I didn't have any sponsors and you had talked earlier that, um, you know, one of the gentlemen that you had uh, talked to that was, you know, making money from setting records. I've made zero dollars and I have I have not monetized, uh, you know, at all from this record uh, attempt. Carl, let me ask you this. On this record attempt, what did you expect it to be like compared to what was it actually like? Like what, what sort of caught you by surprise? Maybe even blindsided you at the end and you go, wow, I didn't expect that. that that's a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Um, I think the biggest shocker that came to me was about the time that I was coming into Manhattan. And at that point, I had realized that I was awfully close to have broke George Egloff's record. Um, and that was a very emotional moment for me because I could see the skyline of Manhattan. And, uh, I knew at that point that if I could just get the rest of the way into, uh, New York city, you know, without making any kind of errors that, um, or, you know, getting struck by a, a vehicle, um, you know, a commuter or something like that that was going into the city uh, late at night that um, I was going to make it. And at that moment, um, all the the time and preparation that had gone into that was, you know, a well of emotion at that point. And probably one of the lowest points of the ride was uh, I got to uh, uh, just about five miles outside Belmont, Ohio, and uh, my tire was starting to wear to the point to where it was no longer going to be feasible for me to make it cross country on that those sets of tires. And uh, while I was along the side of the road e- evaluating, you know what needed to be done, I had been told that the tires that were on the bike were going to last me to New York, no problem. However, the technician that was giving me that advice didn't realize um, the speeds that the bike was going to be doing continuously. And so, needless to say, the tires didn't have enough tread left on them to get me uh, the rest of the way across country. So I'm along the side of the road in Belmont, Ohio, very low point because I had just crossed three quarters of the way across the United States. And uh, we had been setting a pretty good time. And uh, the team members were calling around looking for a tire. Um, I had uh, some folks from uh, the local dealership out here calling some dealerships. However, everything was 45 minutes out of my way. And um, and if they could get the tire on, it, it would take them about an hour to put the tire on and then another 45 minutes for me to get back onto my route. And I would have to go back to Los Angeles and start again. And so we had a primary date, um, which was uh, 
uh, August 28th, which happened to be the full moon. And that planning was on purpose to have the most amount of illumination at night. And then, of course, I had wired on a set of um, uh, clear water auxiliary lights that were like 15,000 lumen. These things were like turning on the sun. Um, so I went out, run my headlights at night. And so all of this planning, I had an alternative uh, date. And the alternate was September 25th, I believe, which was the next full moon. After that, uh, you really can't get over the Rocky Mountains safely. So um, I would have had to wait until spring uh, to make another attempt. And in my mind, I was like, this is like climbing Everest and, you know, you know, sleep deprivation drills that you go through when you're in the military, um, you know, uh, through boot camp, they they keep you up uh, to show you what the human body is capable of if you, you know, push yourself. So I had gone through eight weeks of going to work on Friday morning, and then Friday night I would stay up through the night and do paperwork, and then when Dina would get up on Saturday morning, her and I would have breakfast and go about our Saturday routine. It would be like pulling a double midnight shift. And then Saturday night I would – you know, go to sleep and I would sleep all day Sunday well into the afternoon and then get up Monday morning and start my work week again. And so when I left for the motorcycle run, you know, my body was already used to, okay, this is a Friday morning. I get up early, uh, you know, got out of Los Angeles before uh, the morning rush hour and, you know, crossed the country the only difference is on Friday evening, I stopped in Kansas and had an hour nap. So, um, you know, you can build yourself up to this, but it was just so crushing to have a, a tire issue. So the technician had found a tire in West Virginia, and I started uh, that direction at a very slow pace uh, with my feet down, just hovering above the ground in case I did have a blowout. Um, I nursed the bike to the very next exit, and um, unbeknownst to me, uh, there was a Harley Davidson dealership uh, at that very next exit. And I saw the the sign up on the hilltop, and I said, "Well, I'm going to get off here and see if they have a tire." So I rushed in. I talked to the general manager, told him what I was doing. He immediately grabbed me by the arm and drug me into the stock room. And him and I looked through every single tire that they had there. They had one that was very close um, to what I I needed, um, so we put it on and found out that the tire was rubbing against the single side uh, swing arm. Uh, I called the technician out here in California, um, and I talked to Jay, and he, I told him what was happening. And I said, you know, can we shim it? Can we put you know some washers between the hub and uh, the rim? And he said, do it. So I hung up the phone. I asked the technicians, do they have some washers? They picked out five washers, put them on, and I got the rest of the way in New York City. Well, the technicians out west and several people on my team were monitoring my GPS position. Uh, I had some tracking software on the motorcycle. As soon as the ignition turned off, you know, they called me. And um, Jay said, you know, Carl, you know, how'd you make it to New York? And he said, what'd you do about the tire? And I said, Jay, we told you uh, I was going to shim it. He said, Carl, I said, don't do it. Oh, now, man. <laughs> now, Dina says that I have selective hearing and that I heard <laughs> what I wanted to hear. And, you know, it, it, in my defense, I was, you know, 
I was pretty much exhausted at, at that point. And it's possible that the cell phone had cut out during the part where he said, don't. But um, there is a danger, he said, that the, the tire can loosen with a washer between the hub and the rim. Um, so immediately, and um, I, I got a new set of tires put on and, um, you know, I took the bike to my, uh, my dad's in western Pennsylvania and parked it there. Well, Carl, that is an interesting story. And thanks very much for coming on and sharing it with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. That's quite a story. That was Carl Reese from California, and he is a record setter, Guinness Book World record setter, and uh, I guess non-official record setter as well. You can find out more about Carl by visiting his website, carlreese.net. Coming up in just a few minutes, we've got tips and tricks for the average rider that's going to improve your riding experience. Stay with us. we got a lot more coming up. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR and that forward slash ARR lets them know it came from Adventure Rider Radio. But it's also going to get you 10% off your first purchase or free shipping on your next order for existing customers. Now, Aerostitch says the best way to ride more is to make riding your easiest, fastest way to get from A to B. Simple everyday commuting, errands, long distance riding, whatever. And for 33 years, Aerostitch has been designing and selling equipment that makes riding everywhere in all weather easier, safer, more comfortable and more fun. Now I'll tell you, I've been trying some Aerostitch gear and I'm already feeling that because one thing I absolutely love, I'm wearing a Darien jacket right now and AD1 pants. The Darien jacket has the high collar on it that you can either fold down or lift up. You've got to look at it in the catalog, get out in some cool weather, you pop the collar up and it makes the riding experience completely different. As a matter of fact, I'm finding myself just um, more apt to jump on the bike and ride out even for a short ride when the weather is lousy. So it's already working for me. Visit them at www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And remember when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, now we're going to start into our list of tips and tricks to make your riding a better experience, to make you a better rider, really. And we're going to start off with Sam Marcora. Now, Sam is a motorcyclist, but he's also the director of research at Kent University in the UK. And in 2013, Sam studied fatigue in motorcycle riders during a three-month ride from London to Beijing. And he also studied the effects of caffeine on fatigue and on us as motorcycle riders. Now, Sam has some great information here, and he's also got some new information that I'm sure you have not heard anywhere else. A way that you can use caffeine to your benefit that you would not have thought of before. Sam, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, most of us have experienced some form of fatigue when riding our bikes, and we can relate to that feeling. But I wanted to ask you in particular, what is fatigue really? Like, what's happening to our body? Well, it depends um, what you mean by fatigue. There are two main kinds of fatigue that can affect um, well, anybody, but also a motorbike rider. Um, I guess the most important for motorbike riders is what we call mental or cognitive fatigue. So basically, it's the effect of prolonged mental activity and of course riding a motorbike especially off-road or in in challenging environments like we often find in uh, during adventure motorcycling you know like a busy traffic with crazy people like coming out of from everywhere without looking um you have to uh, you know pay attention to things and and and, and exact control over your bike for a prolonged period of time and that's 
that fatigues your brain. And we call that mental or cognitive fatigue. And, and basically the main uh, negative effect is that two main ones. One is a direct effect on how quickly you can recognize uh, stimuli in the environment, for example, like a, a danger, as I said, you know, a crazy guy coming off a junction without looking and how quickly you react to uh, that danger or that um, stimuli in the environment. So that could be really the difference between, you know, uh, life and death or a crash. So it's pretty important. Um, in the context of kind of more social, like when you are dealing with um, either, you know, if you go out on, as a group or your wife, if it's on the back, or even when you have to deal with the locals or with the, you know, border guards that kind of drive you crazy. But another um, effect of mental fatigue is on your ability to control your emotions. So you become, you know, everybody has, knows this. When we are tired, we are less able to control our, our emotion, but also our behavior. So we may, you know, um, behave in a, in a uh, not appropriate way simply because we are fatigued. Um, so I think that the first one is called cold cognition. And the second one in science is called hot cognition, which has to do more with emotions. But obviously both aspects of mental fatigue, uh, you know, can affect um, your trip. Um, so I think that it's, uh, it's, it's very important. Um, the other kind of men, uh, of fatigue uh, that can affect um, adventure motorbike riders, especially the ones that do a lot of off-road riding, is uh, what we call muscle fatigue, which is basically the a weakening of the muscle induced by prolonged use of those muscles. So if you if you stand on your bike for a prolonged period of time, you have to you know balance your bike and and ride your bike using your legs um, and also you know keep your back in the correct position and you know. Uh, uh, obstacles, all these kind of things, you may should develop fatigue in those muscles. Yeah, especially when you're you're riding a lot of dirt sections, you're standing on your pegs. I think most people who have done that or does that a lot can feel it. That's the sort of fatigue I think that's really easy to relate to. The mental fatigue one is is um is kind of a bizarre thing because quite often you you find yourself feeling tired and you pull over and you think, well, I'm not tired. As soon as I I pull over. I'm, a, I'm awake. So, so let me ask you, what does it do to our brain? Like what's actually going on with that? Because if I could understand why my brain gets tired, is there not some sort of way that I can make sure that I exercise it so it doesn't get tired? Yeah. I mean, we're quite limited in what we can actually measure in humans um, and also in, in terms of mental fatigue. Um, and we're also limiting what we can measure in an animal models <laughs> uh, in terms of cognitive function. So it's quite actually a difficult thing to, to study. But what uh, seems to be the most um, likely uh, culprit, if you like, uh, for mental fatigue is the accumulation of a substance called adenosine. So the brain, um, it's made up of neurons, which are the, the cells that make up the central nervous system. So these neurons, and uh, we have, you know, billions of them in the brain with all the connections, when they are very active, especially if they're active for a prolonged period of time, like, you know, the neurons, if you like, in simple terms, the neurons that are devoted to pay attention to the road, put it this way, um, will be activated for a prolonged period of time when you're riding. And when they're activated for a prolonged period of time, they produce a substance that is called adenosine. Uh, and this substance is um, produced and exported outside the neuron. And then 
what happens when it accumulates outside the neuron, it can binds back to the neuron and makes the neuron less uh, active. Basically, <laughs> adenosine makes the cells that make up your brain tired, fatigued. So you can actually measure this in the neuron cells. The hypothesis is there is some sort of protective mechanism. So then to avoid your uh, neurons running out of um, uh, ATP, which is a, a molecule that, put, uh, that kind of uh, serves to produce energy in any cell, including the neurons. Uh, so to avoid a, a complete depletion of this energy within the cell, the cell becomes fatigued. So it's, it's kind of some sort of a protective mechanism at cellular level. The problem that has these negative effects on your reaction time, your ability to control behavior, et cetera, et cetera, as I just said. So adenosine seems to be the key molecule, uh, the key mechanism for these changes within the brain. So to say our brain is fatigued or mentally fatigued almost isn't really that descriptive, is it, for really what's going on? Because you, you think of fatigue, I think in a general sense, is something's getting tired. But in this case, it's being overcome with a chemical. So there's no way we can actually prepare for that, is there? Well, no, there are, there are um, two things we can do. One, of course, um, is to, for example, in terms of preparation for a, for a, for a trip, if you're not very good in, uh, you know, if you're not a confident rider, if you don't have much experience riding, you will have to exert much more kind of mental effort in order to um, to be safe and or to ride well, you know, off-road, both on the road. So that makes basically riding more difficult. And if, if riding is more difficult and you requ it requires um, less automatic reaction and you have to put more kind of attention to what you do, this would be more fatiguing. Uh, over the same period of time, uh, compared to a rider that uh, you know is is kind of has more kind of experience and a lot of um, actions are become automatic. So I think it's obviously it's it's a good uh, advice <laughs> is to you know to do some like you know most riders do anyway is to do a, a, a good training before you go because that will help you become less fatigued especially at the beginning of the trip. I think even if you start without much training, you know after a while you cannot you learn on the road. So I guess uh, um, it, it becomes um, uh, not so bad. Uh, but you know prepare in terms of making yourself a better rider will help you reduce the fatigue during the uh, the expedition during the trip however uh, even experienced riders get fatigued anyway especially if they uh, you know ride for a prolonged period of time and what you can do which is related to the this adenosine mechanism that i was just telling you about is obviously as i said in the previous um episode is caffeine because what caffeine does it cannot shut the door to uh, adenosine. It cannot blocks adenosine from affecting the neurons. It's it's literally, it, it kind of binds the receptor in which adenosine usually attaches. So adenosine cannot interact with the neurons and therefore cannot have the fatiguing effect on the neuron. So obviously um, caffeine is a, a very good way to reduce fatigue during the ride. The same is with, um, if you can, uh, napping. So uh, when you sleep, uh, what happens is uh, that you kind of um, reabsorb this adenosine. Actually, this is why some people think that uh, sleep 
is needed. That we accumulate this adenosine during the day because our neurons are active, and then during this during sleep, we let, let this um, uh, substance, this adenosine, to be kind of re, uh, reabsorbed and reducing level. Um, so a, a, a nap is also a good uh, way to reduce fatigue. Can I give you something that it sounds kind of contradictory, but I think could be a very very good tip. Sure. Because the problem with napping is that when you wake up, if you sleep only for 20, 30 minutes, which is kind of the duration of a nap, that is enough to have uh, significant positive effects on your cognitive abilities. The problem is that when you wake up, especially if you have to kind of start writing, you know, uh, immediately or very soon after you wake up, you have a different problem, which is called sleep inertia. <laughs> which is kind of, you know, when you kind of a bit groggy, a bit, you're not 100% because you're still waking up <laughs> and you are kind of half asleep and half, half awake. So in order to facilitate or to reduce this uh, sleep inertia, which in itself, you know, can be a bad thing. You know, if you have a nap and then you go on the bike, uh, you, you may have, you know, for several uh, depends on it depends on different people, but it can last several minutes. You may actually be in this state of sleep inertia, and then you become vulnerable, for example, to have an accident because you won't be able to react very quickly. So what you can do actually is to drink, for example, take coffee, let's say drink a coffee or a couple of coffees before the nap. And a lot of people think, oh my God, this is crazy, right? It's kind of counterproductive. Actually, it takes about 30 to 60 minutes before the caffeine, when you drink a coffee, before the caffeine, reaches maximum level in your in your body, in your blood, it takes up to an hour uh, in most people. So if you take it just before the nap, you won't be negatively affected. You can still have a nap. And when you wake up, you have the caffeine circulating, which will help you to uh, basically get out of the nap very quickly and get on your bike and, and be, you know, as um, rested and, and alert as possible. So this is, I think, it's a good tip that not many people know about. Yeah, that is a great tip. Wow, I, I would I would have thought the same thing. I think if you're going to drink a cup of coffee, you're not going to go to bed or not going to go for a quick sleep, but um, that could be a perfect setup for you. Yeah, it, I mean, you shouldn't get a, um, um, coffee before going to bed because the, the plan then is to sleep for, you know, sure. seven, eight hours. Yeah. But if you're taking a nap, you're planning only to, you're going to set up like an alarm or something that you're going to wake up after half an hour, let's say, yeah? I mean, you you, you you don't need a nap longer than an hour, you know, 20 to one hour is plenty. And so you, you will set up your alarm um, in 20, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever. So is the caffeine won't have the time to disturb your, your nap. But absolutely, if you want to sleep well in the night, try to avoid caffeine at least three, four hours before you go to bed, even more, depending on how sensitive you are to caffeine. This adenosine that forms around our cells, uh, it dissipates when we lessen our brain activity. Is that how it works? Yeah, doing sleep. So even just when we stop, we get off our motorcycle, we walk around, that helps dissipate this? Yeah, if you're relaxing and if you're not concentrating or thinking too hard, yes. But sleep uh, would be the best way to, uh, to reduce it or caffeine to block it. People have a deterioration in cognitive performance, usually even before they, they, they feel tired. So it's, it's a good thing to uh, kind of prevent it. But having said that, I mean, if you feel tired, you should definitely do something about it because it means your, your performance is already kind of uh, 
below the danger zone if you actually feel that you're tired. So um, I would definitely do something about it, like a nap or take uh, some caffeine. And when I talk about caffeine, I'm not just talking about, you know, a small coffee. I mean, you should have, in order to have a, a, a you know, a serious effect, you, you need to have, we say three milligrams per kilo body weight. So for somebody who weighs about 85 kilos, which is, I think, something like, I don't know, 200 pounds or something like that, um, which is would be the average um, American man, I guess, uh, you need the equivalent of um, three, three cups of, of coffee. So it's, and you can have that obviously as, a, as coffee, or you can also have it as, you know, pills or chewing gums. There are some interesting uh, chewing gums around. So you can have caffeine many different ways. It doesn't really matter which way you get it. Um, I mean, there are some people that don't like coffee. Uh, you, you can get it in, in pills that don't taste anything. You just, you know, put them down with some water. And it, it regardless of the form of caffeine, it will work in the same way. Or one of those energy drinks that seems to be so popular with young kids nowadays. Yeah, the problem with those that contain a lot of glucose, and contrary to kind of uh, common belief, actually glucose is not that important for mental fatigue. Of course, if you get really, really low with glucose, but that's not normal, um, you will have some cognitive uh, impairment. But if you have just a normal diet, that's enough to maintain your glucose levels at uh, at a normal level. Actually, those energy drinks, it, because they have so much sugar and it's, kind of simple sugar that absorb very quickly. So you have a spike in sugar, but you may actually have a, a less than normal sugar like a, an hour later, um, which will may actually have a negative effect. So the good thing is to maintain basic sugar level constant, neither too high, neither too low. So in, in a normal diet, it's enough to do that. Um, so if I had to take a lot of caffeine, I'd rather get it without too much sugar. Let me just jump back to what you said just a minute ago when you were saying that when you feel tired, you're already past the point, like you're actually, your body has already started exhibiting, although unbeknownst to you, exhibiting signs of at least lessened cognitive function. Yeah. If I did measure your um, reaction time, like with the kind of test that I used during my expedition, it's called a psychomotor vigilance test. So you have this random stimuli, you have to um, respond as quick as possible. Even before you feel, really feel tired, I, I could measure some reduction in, um, in reaction time. So as far as a motorcyclist goes, if you start feeling tired, it's not time to think, how tired am I? You're already past the point. It's time to get off the road. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because I think that's uh, what a lot of people do is they ride along and they think oh, I'm tired and, and you know, I'll, I'll wake myself up. I'll, you know, change lanes or something like that. But really, that's your indicator. Get off the road. Yeah, get off the road, get a coffee. And, and uh, you know, it's uh, maybe, you know, if you're really, really tired, you may want to take a, a quick nap um, with a, a cup of coffee before that or, or two cups of coffee before that. And then you off you go. If you know, for example, that you're going to ride um, for many, many hours or maybe even into the night, um, you may take the caffeine uh, before you feel tired so that you don't get to that point. What's the downside of caffeine? Is there any downside? Because I know when we talked before, I, I was so excited when we, we talked before about it. I thought, yes, you know, now caffeine is good for me and I can walk around with that idea in my head. What's the downside? Actually, on the uh, especially because a lot of adventure motorbike riders are kind of middle-aged and maybe a little bit overweight and stuff. Actually, there is some good research showing, for example, that uh, not so much caffeine, coffee, uh, which is the main form of 
caffeine anyway for most people. Um, actually, it's good, for example, to prevent diabetes, to prevent uh, Alzheimer. Actually, there is a lot of research going on showing that actually coffee as uh, some, even at, you know, at, at levels that before people thought, you know, it's, uh, it's too much. Um, up to, you know, 10 cups a day, it actually has no negative effects and possibly some positive effects on your health. And indeed, the guidelines that just came out for um, the dietary guidelines for Americans, they revised the, you know, recommendation for amount of coffee, they increased it quite a lot. 10 cups? That's a lot. There are some studies showing that you don't get any increase in, uh, you know, uh, disease or with even up to 10 cups of coffee a day. I think now the recommended amount is up to uh, four or five cups a day. Easy. But there are some there are some issues which actually can be important to. First of all, do not, especially if you're thinking about taking, you know, uh, quite high dose of caffeine, try in advance. Don't try, you know, before you go on the trip and and find basically the dose that gives you the positive effects in terms of fatigue, but doesn't make you too uh, kind of fidgety and, and everything else. Uh, because people have different sensitivities, kind of uh, seems to be genetic. So people are genetically different. So some people are more sensitive to caffeine than others. And, and the main side effects, if you take excessive amount, which is actually one of the reasons why athletes take it again, in lay terms, um, speeds up your kind of nerve transmission speed, if you like. So it makes your um, uh, neurons, including the neurons that make up the nerves that go from the spine to your muscles, more excitable, basically, more sensitive uh, to excitable commands. So you may develop some sort of mismatch between the motor command, we call it, that your brain sends to the muscle and how quickly the muscle reacts and you're not used to it, you know, screwing up your coordination because the muscle will contract quicker than uh, you're used to. Uh, but to be honest, this happens only when you have very high doses of caffeine. And if, especially when you take it, if you're not already uh, fatigued. Sam, what are some recommendations you have for things that we can do while we're on our ride to mitigate or handle fatigue? And I guess if you can make your ride more enjoyable, it's very interesting. There is a lot of research showing that if what you do is enjoyable, even if it's mentally demanding, it's less fatiguing than the same level of mental demand if you do something that you don't enjoy. So one thing could be if you can, obviously sometimes you can't because, but for example, try to avoid boring motorway miles. You know, if you can get out of the motorway and do uh, twisties and, you know, you may actually think, oh, that's more mentally demanding. But because you actually enjoy it and it's not it's not boring, it's actually less uh, mentally fatiguing than the motorway boring ride. But if you can, making things more enjoyable, um, that also means, for example, uh, having proper gear. So if you are hot and sticky or, or too cold, um, that will have some direct effects on your brain, making you less uh, capable of reacting quickly. This seems a little bit like it's all in our head, excuse the pun, but it seems like so if we're on a boring ride, then this this adenosine yeah. develops and isolates or, or impairs our, our uh, cells' abilities to communicate. But if we stimulate it, 
then that improves that. That's so I guess it does away with that chemical. But then if we're overstimulated, then it brings that chemical back in. This is a tough one to manage. Yeah, but um, as you say, it's all in your head. But what's in your head is your brain, <laughs> which is made which is made of neurons. There's no kind of ghost or anything, you know. So actually, the difference between the let's say the boring ride and the exciting twisty one is you may actually produce the same level of adenosine. The problem is kind of the areas that are activated differ somehow. So when you mm. when you are in a in a we call it in a negative uh, we say negative affect we call it. So when you are uh, bored or um, you don't like to do something, the areas I suppose not all of them, but some of the areas that are activated are different from the brain areas that you activate when you do something you enjoy. So actually. It, it's it's uh, if you do all these things, you know, you, I think you, you're gonna have a much better and safer ride. And not even when people know about these things, they don't do it. I guess hopefully through your uh, program, people will take care of themselves a little bit more. So to be clear with this, um, the the only way for our, our brain to sort of get its rest and and rejuvenate itself is through sleep. That's that's the real cure for it. But does stopping, you know, if we stop along the side of the road and we decide to go for a walk or something like that, that gives us some sort of reprieve for the mental fatigue then as well. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So what about overall sleep then? Does the, the type or the amount of sleep that we have on a trip, because, you know, sometimes you'll camp in a spot, maybe you won't get a good sleep. Does that affect us during our ride the next day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting enough sleep is, is essential. Even a um, few hours uh, less than the recommended seven or eight hours a day of sleep may affect um your uh, ability both um, physically but especially mentally the day after so it's essential um, to have a good night's sleep and of course you know during a, a trip sometime is not possible but I have some you know very simple tips again obviously the, the comfort it's uh, it's very important and people tend to I think most of the time to be more on the hot than on the cold so actually a, a, a relatively colder room uh, obviously, dark and quiet as much as possible. It's essentially better than a, than a hot one in order to get a good sleep. Um, also, try although again doing the expedition is not uh, always possible, but try to get a, a, into a routine. So try to go to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time um, every day as much as possible. Also, very very important is to, especially these days with the technology. Uh, to avoid uh, using, for example, the iPhone or the, you know, the, the iPad or even, you know, just computers for at least an hour before you go to bed, because that can really screw up your melatonin and, and the way your brain kind of um, sets itself up uh, on the light and dark cycle. Um, also avoid uh, caffeine. The, again, depends on, on the person, so it's, it's good to... Um, experiment before you go but most people you know try to avoid for at least three or four hours any caffeine before you go to sleep even more if you can and of course maybe try not to consume too much water just before you go to bed uh, because yeah that it may wake you up so waking up in the middle of the night that uh, can make our sleep uh, less effective well yes because you you interrupt the what we call REM sleep um the most restorative part of your sleep of those seven to eight hours, only a few hours are in this state. Let's call it deep sleep, if you like. And that's where your brain kind of really recovers. So if you wake up in the middle of that, 
that's going to reduce, you know, you may just be awake for a few minutes. So you, you won't you won't think, oh, that's not really affect my total sleep time, but it will affect your deep sleep time, if you like. So it's important to try to avoid um, yeah, waking up in the middle of the night if you can. You just mentioned seven or eight hours. And my question, I think this is really important, is how many hours do we need? And do we all need the same number of hours for sleep? No, uh, no, no. There, there is there is variability. Uh, some people may need as you know as little as six, and some people need more than eight. But seven to eight is the uh, kind of most people are in that bracket. Put it this way: I mean, if you sleep, and again, it depends how much sleep you need. But if you constantly sleep less than six hours, yeah, I mean, even if you are kind of one of those that don't need much sleep, you're going to be affected because even if it's kind of we call it in when we do research chronic sleep restriction even if you reduce your sleeping only a few hours but every night the effect become cumulative so you may get really uh, your performance might not be impaired the day after or two days after but if for a week you sleep only let's say four hours a, a night after a few days you will really uh, develop start to develop uh, uh, problems with your riding and with your um, ability to react, et cetera, et cetera, because sleep restriction has a cumulative effect. Sam, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to have you on. You're welcome. And that was Samuel Marcora. He is the director of research at Kent University in the UK. You can find out more about Sam. Probably the easiest way is to drop by our website and look at the show notes because the link is rather long. Or, of course, you can just look them up on Google. And since we're in the UK already, we may as well stay and talk with Nick Sanders. Because Nick has ridden around the world seven times. He's motorcycled the length of the Americas eight times. And he holds a record for a double transit from Alaska to Ushuaia and back in 46 days. Nick has to be the world's most recognized long-distance rider for motorcycling. Nick, great to have you back on Adventure Rider Radio. Jim, always a pleasure. Well, we're talking about making our rides more enjoyable and safer, not doing record-setting trips like you do because that's a rarity for people. Um, But what we're looking for is some methods that you've learned over the years and all the riding you've done that maybe we can apply in our everyday riding to make our rides safer and more fun. What's the first thing that pops into your head when we talk about this? Okay, Jim, well, let's do top-of-the-head kind of, you know, shooting from the hip experience. I think, first of all, let's look at the body. Let's look at how we treat our bodies. Uh, I mean, I'm no saint in this discipline, but I like to look at my weight. Weight is very important. And, you know, sadly, I see a lot of bikers and they're quite overweight. And and, and that's fine. That's the way it is. But if we're discussing, you know, how they can um, look at their fatigue and and be less fatigued and and therefore less stressed, um, you know, you carry around sometimes several stone more than they should do. And, and harsh though it is to say, if they look at their health, look at their weight a bit, they'll find that they can ride their bikes in a kind of leaner, meaner manner. Um, I think that uh, health is essential to not stressing the body. The more you stress the body, the tired you're going to be. It's all connected. So look at your diet. Um, just look at your general view of yourself, your body, your perception of how you are in life. And you'll suddenly find you can get on your bike um, um, increasingly more efficiently. Efficiency really does lead to a less stressed environment on the bike. And of course, therefore, that's um, that's going to make you less tired. What about bike and equipment then? 
Um, well, same thing, really. Look, at the end of the day, in the way that the body can carry too much weight, which stresses the body and tires the body, therefore, it's the same with the bike. Um, okay, the big bikes can carry a lot of stuff, but you've still got to handle it. You've still got to, you know, pull it around the corners or whatever. Depends on what bike you're on. If you're on the Harleys and so forth and you like your long straight roads, you know, perhaps not so bad. But when you're on the twisties and you're in the hills and so forth and the mountains, you've got this great big centre of gravity on the top of your bike or on the side of your bike which is pulling you around and you've got to shift and turn and shove and push and you know it's all calories it all takes time and it all takes effort and I think at the end of the day too much effort equals inefficiency equals tiredness so big body big bike slim it all down any other tips you have it's a mental approach, isn't it, really? I think these are two big things. So you carry less on your bike, for example. It's like looking at what you don't need. Come on, guys. It's a little bit like comfort eating, comfort packing. I've seen it so many times, Jim. Um, you really do have to kind of watch what you pack. You don't need those extra pair of socks even. Um, it's not so much that you're carrying weight. That's one part of it. But look at what you're having to do. Having to unpack at the end of the day, you're having to pack at the beginning of the next day. It's all to do with having too much stuff. You know, there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a paradox here, if you don't mind my saying, and I'm going to sound a little controversial here, but uh, the same, you know, we bikers, we like to think that we can cut and run, we can leave the house, you know, leave family and friends, and we're on our road, you know, on our, our, on, on our adventure and so forth, taking the minimum, you know, giving up on all, all the life stuff that we've accumulated. That's what we like to do. And yet... What do you do? You pack your bike to the gunnels. You take stuff you don't need. Three pairs of shoes, four pairs of trousers, T-shirts you're never going to take out in the first place. You've got to look at the overall um, the overall f- a feel of the whole thing. You know, um, it's not the weight. It's the, it's the consciousness behind it. Look at when you pack. Ask yourself several times, do I really need to take it? And if you don't, don't take it. Nick, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much indeed. That was long-distance adventure writer Nick Sanders. And you can find out more about Nick by visiting his website, nicksanders.com. Well, we still have a couple of people to talk to, but really what it comes down to with riding the motorcycle, one of the biggest things is managing your fatigue. Because we get, as Sam Markora said, we get physically tired and mentally tired. So some things you can do to help deal with that, um, one of them is riding better roads. You know, I think Sam had mentioned that as well, about not riding the boring highway. Pick a road that's curvy, pick something interesting. Definitely wearing the proper gear, because I know even a helmet that is loud, if you're not wearing earplugs, there's another one, earplugs plugs. If you're not wearing earplugs, you tend to get mentally fatigued because you're listening to that buzzing and the whirring of the wind and that wears you down. So it's another thing. And all these little things are going to add up to something big in the long run. A lot of people plan their trip, but what you should be also thinking about is plan your stops. So if you plan your stops, instead of just making it a roadside pullout where you've got a garbage can to stare at, try and plan your stops where it's something interesting going on. You know, some maybe a little hike that you can do or at least a view, but something that's of interest. Now, all these things affect us as motorcycle riders in general. It doesn't matter if you're just riding around on your cruiser and going a short distance or whether you're going a long distance or whether you're running a race. And really, when it gets into running races, that's when you have to be really careful with your energy and how you manage fatigue. 
Christophe Barrier-Varjou is an endurance rider. He's a motocross champion. He's been the Dakar Rally four times in Africa and South America. And the Dakar, as you know, is the toughest, most dangerous motorsport race in the world. Christoph was the subject in the award-winning film called Dream Racer, and we had him on here quite some time ago talking about that film and his bid at running the Dakar and what it was like. So we contacted Christoph and asked him if he could share some tips from his riding experience and racing experience that would apply to everyday riding. Christoph, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Jim, thanks for having me. Well, we're talking about making our riding more comfortable, better for everyday riding. And a lot of that is managing fatigue. And I certainly know you have to do it because that's a huge thing in the Dakar is just the endurance because it's an endurance race. So what tips do you have for us as far as managing our fatigue and making riding more enjoyable on an everyday basis? Well, the, uh, the, the first thing in, in riding a motorbike, and this is something that not a lot of people uh, actually do, and I, I don't even during the Dakar, I don't see a lot of people doing, which is, you know, actually something very simple, which is stretching before uh, you get on a motorbike and then stretching when you finish the day to release all the lactic acid inside your muscles. So that's in itself will help um, fatigue for the next the next day. Then you deal into uh, into how you ride a motorbike and, um, you know, the body position and, and how you actually uh, sit on a bike, how do you stand up, whether you put the, the weight on the pegs, whether you, how do you hold the handlebar, and all of this has to deal with uh, achieving a proper balance, where, which is a position where you do not use any muscles apart from standing up on a motorbike in, and standing up in a natural position or sitting down in a natural position where you do not use any muscle. And um, one of the biggest muscle group that you have in your body is your abs. And your abs are actually controlling how you move the bike underneath you. And, you know, it's a lot easier to control a motorbike with your abs than it is to try to hold it uh, really hard with your hands and your arms and your shoulder. And the problem with that is that when you do this, you get tired very, very quickly. Uh, Not only during the ride, but also, you know, the next day and the following day and so on and so forth. So the uh, the important part is is achieving that balance. Now that balance is fine when you sit still and um, or you stand up still and the bike is not moving. That's pretty straightforward. But when the bike is actually on dirt and going up, going down, hitting rocks, ruts, sand, and all of that, that bike is constantly moving underneath you. And the way to achieve that perfect balance is to preempt every bit of movement that the bike is going to do and move ahead of time. So for example, if you accelerate, the bike wants to go from underneath you, the bike wants to go forward. And people have a tendency to, you know, hold on to the handlebar while the bike is pulling them, you know, pushing them toward the front. And therefore you, you know, you hang on tight with your with your arms and your hands. And then you start having problems with your hands. So the way to avoid that is that as the bike moves forward, you slightly move your body forward as well to again not use any muscle in your hand or in your arms so you can maintain that perfect balance and uh, the same is true when uh, for example if you go down the hill um, the bike you hitting the brakes the bike is slowing down to, underneath you and your body wants to go you know ahead of the bike and so again you hang on to the bike and you can use your arms to hold on or you can use your legs to hold to the uh, to the tank or you can slightly tilt your toes inward 
and have the natural position of um, the natural movement of the legs actually squeezing the tank for you so you don't have to actually squeeze the tank using strength and your uh, inner leg muscle so there's a lot of techniques to try to avoid uh, using uh, any muscles uh, while riding the bike which then helps in um, in managing fatigue during 7 10 12 14 hours a day ride and um, all of that takes a long time to uh, to practice but uh, i guess you have to be aware of what you need to do in order to uh, isolate all the things that you uh, you have to to work on to um, to reduce the effort on riding a bike so it's staying loose on the bike you know you're not you're not clamped onto the handlebars you're staying balanced and loose and that's right the handlebar is purely used to you know operate the accelerator and the brake and the clutch you don't turn you don't use your strength to turn the handlebar or to hang on to the bike all of this is done through balance and a proper position on the motorbike that way you can maintain you know a long day of riding in the dirt without being tired however you got to be careful when you enter a rough section full of rocks and holes you have a tendency to cramp on the bike just in case and that's where the experience comes in if you are loose on the bike and you don't have that experience then the, you will lose the bike underneath you very quickly but if you are experienced in, in preempting what the bike is going to do and reacting very quickly you don't have to uh, to camp on the bike. So it's, it takes years and years to practice. But, you know, the basic stuff on, on having the perfect position, uh, moving your body forward, backward, and, um, and keeping that balance uh, neutral on the bike is key to everything. So you know if you're doing it right by when you accelerate, if you're if you're not holding onto the bars and holding yourself up, same as going down a hill, if you're not pushing back on the bars and holding yourself up, then you must be getting close to uh, to learning how to do that. That's right. Well, one of the tests is you ride sitting down to start with and you accelerate in second or third gear and you lift your left hand off your handlebar, maybe five or five or ten centimeters just above the handlebar and watch what your body is doing. That hand should stay just above that handlebar while you accelerate and brake, accelerate and brake, go up the hill, down the hill. That hand should not move. Uh, and then you realize that suddenly you are no longer using your arm to hold you on the motorbike, you're using your abs. Then you repeat that exercise while you're standing up. And remember during the film Dream Racer, I had an injury on my left arm where I had you know, no more triceps on the, on the left arm. And I was able to ride four days in the sand dunes. And without having the proper technique, there is no way I could have done that uh, because I pretty much did not use my left arm at all for four days. And, and that's how you practice, you know, you, you just don't spend the day just riding, but just try little tricks, uh, lift your hand up, your left arm, your left hand just above the bars and accelerate, brake, and that hand should stay above the bar and uh, not move forward or backward. The, um, the, the other uh, tip is uh, once you, um, if you enter a section that is a bit rough, uh, people have a tendency to hold their breath uh, because they get scared. They go, <gasps> you know, like this. And, and by holding your breath, you block your air intake and you raise your heartbeat because there's less oxygen getting into your body. So the breathing is very is also very key to, uh, to reducing fatigue on the motorbike. Make sure you breathe, you know, slowly and, and long, deep breath for, you know, breathing in and breathing out all the time and, um, and try to control your heart rate that way as well. Well, I'm sure there's so much more we could talk about, but for now, thanks very much, Christoph. Thanks very much, Jim. You can find out more about Christoph and the movie Dream Racer by visiting dreamracer.tv.
Well, you'll want to drop by this website, giantloopmoto.com, because if you go there and use the promo code ARR, it's going to get you free shipping in the United States. Giant Loop is known for waterproof, extremely durable bags. They started the company by trying to design a bag for themselves to put on their enduro bikes and and head off into the the rugged high desert country of Eastern Oregon. And from there, it boomed into a company. You got to love those type of stories because it does tell you something, a company born from the desire to make a product for yourself to begin with. Giant Loop is also the exclusive North American importer for Rally Raid products. That's the Honda CB500 kits that uh, we covered a couple episodes ago. It turns the Honda CB500X into an amazing adventure motorcycle with the lowest seat height out of any twin-cylinder adventure bike on the market. Visit them at giantloopmoto.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, we haven't quite covered it just yet. We talked about riding. We talked about the things we can do as riders to mitigate fatigue and make the riding more exciting and keep us alert and enjoyable. But what about the pillion? What about your passenger? The person sitting on the back of your bike is difficult for the pillion as well. And Shirley Hardy Ricks is a pillion with a lot of miles under her belt. She's traveled to many different places in the world on the back of a motorcycle with her husband, Brian. And both Brian and Shirley are also on our ARR Raw episode. Episodes. If you haven't heard that already, you'll want to drop by our website and check that out. It's a separate show. It's Roundtable Discussions. Both Shirley and Brian ride around on their BMW, and they've just completed their third trip, which was into Russia and Mongolia. I thought we needed the perspective of a pillion, so I asked Shirley to come on and talk to us about what she does to keep herself alert and to fight off fatigue and boredom on the back of a motorcycle. Shirley, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Good to speak to you again. Now, I know you've spent a lot of time riding as a pillion because that's what you do. You're not a licensed rider. You only ride on the back of Brian's bike. How many miles do you think you've covered as a pillion? Uh, well, we worked out um, that we've done about 170,000 kilometres outside of Australia. And around Australia, I don't know, lots. Probably the same again, maybe, or even more than that. So, uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of time on the back of the bike. All care, no responsibility. <laughs> I don't know about no responsibility because <laughs> I, I understand it as you handle the navigation. Uh, no, not really. I can't read a map. <laughs> but a, to, to trust me with navigation. No, I'm sorry. I'm not- <laughs> I got that wrong. No, you didn't handle navigation. You're supposed to point out obstacles. There was something I thought you were doing on the back. <laughs> oh, no, I do point out obstacles. And, uh, and But if I'm doing directions, I actually have to tap Brian on the shoulder of the way we should go because being a left-hander, I tend to point in the left direction and say go right. <laughs> so he doesn't know which way he has to go. So we have a, a tap, tap and direct situation set up. <laughs> Well, that's, that's important to work out. But so let's start off with, because we're, t- we're dealing with fatigue on motorcycles. Now we're going to talk about fatigue as a pillion. So clearly you do get tired on the back? Absolutely, I do. We try and go by the rule which um, probably all people in charge of a vehicle should do and that's have a break every couple of hours and get off and just stretch and walk around, maybe have a, a drink or you know, something to eat, but just have a little break off the bike. But um, even even doing that, and sometimes that's not possible, I can get very tired on the back and uh, have been known to fall asleep on more than one occasion. 
Okay, so hang on here. First, I was going to ask, you know, what do you do when you get tired? But then you've answered it. You said you actually fall asleep. Now, it, it's clearly the design of your bike in particular be, that allows you to do that because not every bike you could fall asleep on is appealing. I'm not even sure on any bike how safe it would be. What happens when you fall asleep? You just fall forward into Brian? I do actually fall forward, which is good, and I don't. So I don't sort of fall on either, go either side as if I'm about to fall off the back of the bike. But when I say asleep, I'm not sound asleep for half an hour, but um, I do actually nod off enough. We we listen to music on the bike, Jim, and we have a CD of Joe Cocker's greatest hits. And on one very long trip, we played this a few times, and I said to Brian, that CD is just hopeless because it doesn't have keep your hat on. And he said, yes, it does. So I had actually slept every time that song was on and I'd never heard it. So that was a concern to me because I'd actually been asleep for three or four minutes on a regular basis. (laughs) I'm not sure I would ever think of Joe Cocker as a stay awake CD. Oh, no. We sing along. It's a very sad life that we lead. It's it's different (laughs) to other people's. I feel sorry for you. (laughs) So, So you're falling asleep for a few minutes and you think that's safe. That's fine with you. Well, because I only just, I do lean forward. If I started to lean either side, it would be a worry. But I actually can't prevent it. I just get that weary. A lot of people find the same thing. If you're in a car and you're the passenger and you stop and you have lunch and in the afternoon the sun's coming through the windscreen, it's really hard to stay awake and the pinion will often doze off. And sometimes I think that's what's happening to me that we've had, we have, we've stopped, we've had lunch, I'm in the sun, so I start to doze off. But um, I've never felt that it was dangerous. It's probably not very good. It's not a good thing, but I can't help it. That's just, when I get tired, I just doze off and there's not much I can do about it. I'm thinking you might want a big piece of Velcro on the front of your suit in the back of Brian's. (laughs) (laughs) Or a big strap and just strap me to Brian's, like a big safety belt. (laughs) Do you have any methods or, or uh, tricks that you use so that you at least attempt to not fall asleep or not get tired? Of course. Um, I stretch my legs. I drop my legs down off the pegs and swing them out and uh, quite straight so I can get the blood flowing to my feet and just jiggle them around a bit. Um, we often carry um, jelly lollies like snakes and jelly babies, things like that, inside the, um, the strap on the back of the camelback. So if I feel I need a sugar fix, I can have that. And I also feed those to Brian. When he needs a sugar fix, I can give him lollies from the backpack. If we're going through a town, um, Brian will stand up and then when he's stretched, I'll stand up and stretch my legs that way. And um, I do talk to myself but not too loudly because the intercom system is voice activated. Uh, I sing and, again, not too loudly because it is voice activated. And we talk to each other through the intercom system. If we're on a long and boring road, we'll discuss all sorts of things that we need to deal with when we get to our destination. That helps keep me awake. And sometimes we just need to stop. I just need to get off the bike and stretch. And so does Brian, just to have a break. Yeah, I think communications are a huge asset for traveling, even if you're not on the same bike. Any other tips you have for us? Look, I think you've just got to be sensible about stopping and having breaks because we have got the most comfortable bike and while I need to stretch my legs, I don't get um, I don't get knee cramp or some of the problems that I know if you're on a, a like a little sports bike and you're very cramped. But you just need to, to get off the bike and have it. Even if it's only two or three minutes, we don't need to stop for a long time. But just, just to stop, get off, stretch, have a drink of water from the camelback, maybe have something to eat, have a chat, get back on the bike and go. 
it's a, it's a good thing to do because we have a tank that gives us 600 kilometres range so we don't have to stop every couple of hours to get fuel. That's a, a thing that I hear a lot of people say with smaller tanks. They say they, they don't mind it because it gives them the opportunity to stop and stretch their legs while they're refueling. Exactly, exactly. Whereas we just we can just keep going and you have to be careful to make sure even if you're feeling really good, you do need to stop because your concentration levels go down and you just need to, you know, you know what it's like. You need to have your wits about you all the time on a motorcycle because a lot of the car drivers are out there with the intent to make sure your day is a miserable one. So... <laughs> That's great, Shirley. Thanks very much for your input. No worries, Jim. Talk to you again soon. And that was a Pillion's point of view from Shirley Hardy Ricks, and you can find out more about her and Brian's adventures at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, who we're very proud to be associated with. They've been outfitting adventure riders since 2002, and they've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. That's free. You can just go to their website, maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And another company we're proud to be associated with is Best Rest Products. They're home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, and the Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other motorcycle gear. So whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a reliable tire inflation method, and that is definitely the Cycle Pump. It's what we use ourselves here at Adventure Rider Radio. And get this, it's got a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it we certainly appreciate you listening and if you like what we're doing and like keep the show free and help us keep things going drop by our website and consider clicking on the donate button any donation over ten dollars is going to get you a gift shot back in the mail from us our way of saying thank you now, if you haven't already heard it, we have the new show, ARR Raw. Now, it's a separate show from this one, so you have to subscribe separately. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Raw button. There's three episodes out so far. They come out once a month. I want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. And now, I guess it's time for you to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. This is Scooter Transkai uh, coming to you from Adventure Rider Radio.